My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome aboard today's episode. Delta is currently the second largest airline in revenue and second in passengers carried. From its humble beginnings as a crop dusting operation, and despite the occasional turbulence, this airline would soar to massive heights. But in 2005, Delta filed for bankruptcy, and they weren't the only ones losing altitude. This seemed to be a pretty big decade for airline failure. But while other airlines were permanently grounded, Delta once again took wing. And how did they do that? Well, buckle in and return your tray tables and seats to their upright positions as we take off for Delta on the brink. Hey there, everybody. I am Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Caston. And Ariel, I I have to take my metaphorical hat off to you for writing that intro because there were so many puns. <laughs> it was it was a beautiful thing. Oh, I, I love puns. Thank you. And as we have alluded to, we will be talking about Delta Airlines. And uh, for interest of full disclosure, before we even get started in this, my wife works for Delta, mm-hmm. so uh, I. But you know, she has no say in what I do here. <laughs> Just as I have no say in what she does at Delta. Well, my husband does not work for Delta, but he sometimes rides it. Yeah, we've both uh, both flown. Yes, a few times. You a bit, quite a bit more but than as, me. As a spouse of someone who works <laughs> for Delta, I have flown quite a bit, and Delta has a really fascinating history. Uh, Delta is one of those companies where it's not super easy to point at a company timeline and say, here is where it all began, because it mm-hmm. actually, there were a lot of things that led into the creation of Delta yeah. as a as a company. And as our series title suggests, a lot of things that led into the brink as well. It wasn't just one instance and bam, they're there. Yeah, there was actually decades of policy they got overturned in the 1970s. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. We'll get there and, yes. and we'll talk about how yes. that really was both a good thing and a bad thing. It had unintended consequences. But to start with, just to get an overview of where Delta came from, in back in 1920, uh, some guys named Thomas Huff and Elliot Deland 
created the Ogdensburg Arrowway Corporation in New York. And in 1925, they renamed it the Huff Deland Arrow Company, and they relocated out of Bristol, Pennsylvania. And at that point, they weren't an airline. They weren't taking people mm-hmm. or or even stuff anywhere. They were building airplanes, mostly for the military. And their next step was also not necessarily moving people around. They then started Huff Dallin Dusters as a subsidiary company of Huff Dallin Arrow, and it was the first commercial agricultural flying company, so they did crop dusting. Yeah, and this was out of a place that we're both familiar with, Macon, Macon Georgia. Georgia. Oh, man, Macon, Bacon. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they they started off building out a small fleet, although mm-hmm. it was the largest privately owned fleet at the time. But Eight, still small. 18 whole planes. Yeah, yeah. And they also moved into doing some mail carrying and, you know, shortly after crop dusting, people carrying. I hope not simultaneously. Yeah. Then in uh, the late 1920s, a CE woman comes in, buys the company, and decides that he doesn't care for the Huff Dalland Arrow Company name, so he renames it, and he calls it Delta Air Service. Now, why Delta? Well, that would be because they served at the Mississippi Delta region. Yep. So in the late 20s, they also incorporated mm-hmm. And they began their first passenger flights. So uh, let's say I want to get from point A to point B, and I want to fly Delta. Where are point A and point B? Texas and Mississippi. Oh, right. Uh, And you have to be one of the lucky five total passengers on their planes at that time. Yeah, five passengers, one pilot. Which, if you you ask me, not a bad ratio. No. No, it's a nice intimate. But, you know, having recently been on a puddle hopper, Tiny little cramped little plane. Yeah, I rarely fly on planes that small, and my wife never will. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot convince her to get on those. She says if the plane is to the size where she could reach her arms out to either side and touch walls, she she wants a bigger plane. Uh, So 1930s, they start service to the city that you have to go through now Mm -hmm. if you're on Delta, or at least that's the joke, which is Atlanta, Atlanta. our hometown. Yes. So this episode's also a big shout out to a major power player in our city. And they decided that they weren't going to continue passenger services for Mm -hmm. a couple of years because they got another gig. Yeah, uh, flying mail routes for the Postal Service. So I guess the letters were more important than the people trying to get from Atlanta to Texas to Mississippi. People still have buses. (laughs) It's hard for a letter to board a bus and get off at the right location. Gosh darn it, there are perishable goods in this this box. They're really, really bad at directions. Um. Yeah, so uh, then they eventually start flying under the name Delta Airlines, and they began to offer night service flights in 1935. Yes, with two pilots, wow, and eight passengers. Now, at this point, Delta, while it is flying passengers, was not one of the big major airlines in the United States. No, the big four were Eastern, TWA, United, and American. Mm -hmm. And then we had uh, this bit of legislation that would take take control for the next four decades, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1930. 38. Yes, and this allowed Delta to jump into uh, the market of the big four and kind of be a competitor. Yeah. 
It so, allowed for better market growth. It, what's important to remember here, and we'll talk more about it in just a second, but uh, this was an era where in the United States, if you had an airline that flew flights between states, mm-hmm. you know, so you went beyond one state into another, then you fell under the purview of an agency and you were you had to agree to certain rules on a federal level. And that included things like the federal government setting the rates for airfare and what your schedule was and what routes you could fly. And in these early days, what that helped to do is establish an industry. But as we'll see as we go along, the longer that policy stayed in place, the more constrained everybody was. Yeah. So yeah. moving on with Delta's history. Yes. In the 1940s, they added flight attendants, uh, which were called stewardesses at the time. Yes. We are uh, more elevated in our thinking these yes, days. we are. And they also moved their headquarters to Atlanta. So they had service to Atlanta, but now they're going to be based out of Atlanta. And then they also started modifying their airplanes uh, to contribute to World War II efforts mm-hmm. because that was happening. And then they were training military pilots and mechanics for their planes. If you listen to our episode on Harley-Davidson, similar to what Harley was doing with their bikes and training people to service their bike. Right, and the, this would end up serving the company well post-war because they would have a uh, a larger infrastructure in place They also underwent another name change. Yes, they became Delta Airlines Incorporated. And they hit one million passengers flown on Delta Airlines. Which, you know, is a lot when you consider... They're flying them like five or eight at a time. Five or eight at a time. Maybe maybe a few more by that time. And uh, also, they had traveled half a billion passenger miles with no fatalities. Mm -hmm. They were recognized by the National Safety Council... Uh, for that 10 years of no fatality success. And they introduced a special class of flying for those who were on a budget. Like me. No, they introduced coach service uh, from Chicago to Miami. So, I guess if you're going to the windy city to Miami. I would say if if you're going from the grayest city to the sunniest city. (laughs) I don't know that Chicago's the grayest. No, it's not. Chicago's lovely. So 1950s, that's when they began to incorporate a hub system. And this is something that became common in the airline industry for the big airlines in the United States. The idea that you create a base of operations in a major city and you have a lot of flights out from that area, you don't necessarily do a lot of direct flights city to city across the states. So if you want to get from point A to point B, you got to fly through Atlanta first. Yes. That was the joke. Yes. Still is. It still is. You know, I was trying to get back from New Hampshire to Atlanta, and I had to fly through Philadelphia, which seemed a little off course for me. I once had to fly home from Philadelphia to Atlanta, but because of the way the the flights had filled up, I had to go Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, D.C., D.C., Atlanta. That— Sounds like an adventure. It was a long day. Yes. Delta had several hubs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Atlanta remains Delta's hub, but for a while it also had Cincinnati, and uh, I believe it still has Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, So those would be the major hubs for Delta, but different airlines have different cities as their hub. Yes. Uh, Also in the 1950s, Delta installed radars in the noses of their aircraft, and they also got their first logo. Wow. Uh, It's amazing that they had been around for decades and they get their first logo in 1950s. 
In the, in 1966, the CE woman who had purchased Delta from uh, the original creators back uh, several decades earlier passes away. Yes. Uh, they gave a 1925 Huff Dalland duster to the Smithsonian in remembrance of him, which is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. They hit 50 years old once they get into the 1970s. And at this point, they had moved away from airplanes entirely. The entire fleet was now jet aircraft, no longer prop planes necessarily. And they end up hitting their first, uh, hitting a major financial loss by 1980. Uh, This is a point where they actually were in some pretty dire straits financially. So they turned to their employees as one of the ways that they could recover. Yeah, they raised about $30 million from payroll deductions. Yikes, never a fun thing. Yes, and they took that money and purchased their first Boeing 767. Yes, they call it the Spirit of Delta, which, yes. by the way, there there is always at least one Spirit of Delta. If you pay attention when you get on the plane, you might notice if uh, you're on the Spirit of Delta. I have not flown on the Spirit of Delta, despite the fact that I've flown Delta many, many times. I'm going to assume that I haven't. By this time in the 80s, Delta is the fourth largest carrier in the U.S., fifth in the world because of a Western Airlines merger, and they also start Trans-Pacific Service to Asia. And in the 90s, they would continue their their path of growth. Uh, they were part of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet during Operations Desert, uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And Pan Am, which had gone bankrupt in uh, 91, mm-hmm. would end up uh, having its assets largely purchased by Delta. So routes and uh, Pan Am shuttle were acquired through this process. So Pan Am was one of a whole bunch of airlines that went bankrupt around this time. Uh, Essentially, you started seeing a lot of airlines going bankrupt toward the end of the 70s, all the way up through the mid-2000s. And it was ugly, y'all. Yes, but Delta did get back to its profits in 1994. And it also introduced Olympic planes because... The Olympics were in Georgia in 1996. Yeah, and that was where Delta was headlined. And then we're getting into what we were alluding to earlier with the brink. Yes. So why, if things are going so smoothly for Delta, I mean, despite the the blip that they had in the 1980s, why did they have this issue where they had to go into bankruptcy protection? And moreover, how did they climb out of it? We're going to talk about the unintended consequences of deregulation when we come back from this word from our sponsor. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. 
So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. So earlier I mentioned that you had this thing happen in 1938 that uh, ended up really affecting the airline industry and gave Delta an early boost. Yes, that was this same issue that we would see dismantled in 1978. Yes, the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, to be exact, uh, it allowed a bunch of smaller airlines to open up mm-hmm. and cause the larger airlines to have to kind of scurry to keep up with the competition. Yeah, so with regulation, with the government setting these things, like setting the airfare rates and setting routes and setting schedules— it was starting to rub passengers the wrong way because mm-hmm. airfares were high. There was no competition. Yeah. Because the government told you how much the tickets had to be, right? So there was no way for one company to say, well, we're going to try and win more customers by dropping the mm-hmm. airfare for this one route. You didn't get to decide all your routes. You, you could propose routes, but the government would have to approve it. So if you wanted to propose a new route from Atlanta to, let's say, Topeka, Kansas, you'd have to submit that to the government first before you could get actual approval to do that. Uh, You had to submit schedules to the government too. This was all meant to help make sure the industry grew in a way that was uh, supported by the government. But at this point, a lot of the a lot of the customers were not terribly happy because they felt like they were paying a lot of money for uh, things that probably could be of uh, rated lower, put mm-hmm. at a lower cost. the The airlines themselves, the big ones, weren't terribly upset with the regulation. Yeah. They were getting pretty regular 
The government know, nice, was picking good prices. Yeah, perhaps. exactly. They were making they were making bank is what they were doing. But then in 1978, the government decides to deregulate the industry. Mm -hmm. This creates incredible amount of competition rapidly. And so you start getting into price wars. And you're talking about companies that haven't had to deal with this for four decades. Yes. Some of those price wars meant cutting airfares so low that it was starting to eat into profit margins. It was starting to make the companies uh, become less stable financially. Mm-hmm. They had they had to deal with airlines that had smaller fleets and less bells and whistles, but were offering flights at a fraction of the cost. Yes. Which, you know, all those coach passengers are all about. Right. So the question was, should the larger companies focus mainly on longer flights that the smaller uh, airlines weren't really able to accommodate? Uh, you know, how could they compete in that same space. And we saw a lot of airlines start up in this era. We Mm -hmm. saw a lot of them shut down. We saw a lot of both. Like, we saw a lot of the same ones that start up fail. Well, and three of the big original four airlines did not survive this competition. Pan Am, Eastern, and TWA all folded. Yeah. So, this got ugly. It also led to some pretty big Uh, cost-cutting measures Mm -hmm. for the companies that did survive. So people who worked for these airlines started to see their salaries uh, stagnate, like wages were not going up along with the rest of the industry. And and then we also hit, at this time, an economic slowdown. Yes. So multiple things are all happening around this era. And and the fallout of this deregulation act would take— course, uh, it would take decades to, mm-hmm. to un- unfold, to unravel, right? I think generally speaking, when people who uh, oppose government regulation are thinking those thoughts, they point to things like the regulation of the airline mm-hmm. industry and say, see how that was bad for customers because we had this mandated airfare and you couldn't get that bargain price to to go fly, you know, whatever airline you wanted, you were stuck having to pay these higher, the higher costs. On the flip side of that, uh, it solved some problems, but it made other problems. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a constant battle, you know, even today between what is good for the customer and what is good for the company and finding that right balance. Um, But Delta was hit kind of especially hard by these smaller airlines like uh, AirTran and JetBlue because, they didn't have a lot of international travel. So most of their travel was domestic. Delta, that is. Yeah. So they're in direct competition with these small airlines. Yeah. They don't have extra, you know, revenue builders out there. Right, because it it wouldn't be for a few years before Delta would start building out its— uh, more of its international yeah. travel. They had a little bit, but it's not what they were known for. Right. Now, more than like, I think, 80% of their revenue came from domestic mm-hmm. flights. So yeah. uh, where when you see a, a more competition in your space where, you're, where your bread is buttered, then you're going to take a hit. Yeah. But even still, they were struggling along. And then? Then we have the absolute awful disaster mm-hmm. September 11th, 2001, terrorist attacks. Yes. Uh, I was supposed to fly that day. Yeah, I 
it, it was a little unreal for me. I was working at a daycare with children at the time. So someone told me what happened. I had to wait for a break to go watch a TV and it horrible. Yeah, uh, it's still surreal to mm-hmm. think about that day. And uh, of course, you know, I didn't fly that day. All flights were grounded. And this was across all airspace in the United States. It lasted for two days. Yes. And uh, stranded a lot of people in a lot of different places. Also meant that uh, airlines were really in a bind to try and uh, once operations began again to get people to where they needed to be. They were understandably really hesitant to fly at this point. Yeah. And so Delta, uh, Delta was not alone in this. I mean, all the airlines took a massive hit from this. But Delta ended up losing uh, $2.4 billion over the course of 2001 and 2002. It was their first financial loss in six years. And um, it was only the beginning of their kind of nosedive into the brink. Yeah, they decided to try and compete more directly with these budget airlines by launching a uh, a service called Song, and this was their their version of uh, budget mm-hmm. flights. I've flown on Song aircraft before. Actually, Song aircraft they got a few amenities before some of Delta's other aircraft did that I really liked a lot. Yeah, but you know what? Song overall didn't do very well. That's true. Um. In 2003, their CEO, Leo Mullen, retired. Yeah, this was uh, where when he retired, one of the things that he was getting criticized for was that he had offered some massive bonus packages for executives, a lot of golden parachutes. Yeah, when they're supposed to be cutting costs and when they're not offering their employees raises or Yeah, and they're trying to avoid going bankrupt. And this, yeah, this— this was a dark time for people who worked at Delta. Uh, it's it's very tough, very demoralizing. Yeah. If you're an employee, a rank-and-file employee, and you hear about an executive who comes in, maybe this executive spends six months at Delta. Maybe this executive makes some terrible decisions. But because part of that executive's agreement to come work for Delta was a golden parachute, a guarantee that even if that person were to leave the job or be fired or whatever, that they would have a certain amount of money or mm-hmm. stock or whatever. Uh, that was like, you know, you had re- regular employees saying, well, this is totally unfair. If I come in to work and I do a terrible job for six months, mm-hmm. you don't reward me. Yeah, yeah, it was it was unfair and hence the retirement, quote unquote. Yes. Uh, now, this caused... Delta, by the fourth quarter of 2004, to have lost $2.2 billion, their single largest loss in a quarter. And so then uh, they, the new CEO of Delta tries to take some measures to turn things around. Yeah, he negotiated a give back by the pilots of one-third of their pay and benefits. Whew. Which I guess if you really like working for Delta, you're going to give up some of that pay for some a little bit more job security. Um, they're also trying to make flights more efficient at that time, having a shorter turnaround time and conserving fuel and lowering fares. They saved about a billion dollars doing all this. Yeah, they also sold some of their fleet and they also cut about 5,000 jobs. But they were still hit with more misfortune because Hurricane Katrina hit in August of 2005. And it 
pushed oil prices way, way up to 60 or $7 a barrel. Yeah, and that was the last straw for Delta. Del- mm-hmm. Delta had been fighting off having to file for bankruptcy protection, but at this point, it was too much. And on September 14th, 2005, Delta would declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And uh, here's a, a interesting thing. They were not the only airline to do it that day. Nope. Northwest Airlines filed less than a half hour later. Yeah. According to reports. But over this five-year period of, of turmoil, Delta lost about $10 billion. That's crazy amount of money. It is. So this seems like Delta's really in dire straits. I mean, the airline industry was in dire straits. Almost half of the industry's capacity was operating under bankruptcy oversight. So how could Delta pull out of this nosedive? We'll explain in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, and when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, Ariel, Mm -hmm. how did Delta pull out of this? Well, first, they cut additional costs. Okay. And then they sold Atlantic Southeast Airlines. Okay. And then they cut their flight capacity out of the Cincinnati hub. Which explains why it's so hard for me to get back home now. It's true. Yeah. And then they did like an internal company reboot. Mm -hmm. That cost them $3 billion. This is actually a very bold move, right? That That— they see the need to redefine themselves, to reposition themselves, to restructure uh, all of these rewords, and it would mean having to spend 
$3 billion while you're in Chapter 11. Yeah, it's 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 a whole lot of investment for very little guarantee. Mm-hmm. And it took 19 months to do. Yeah, so this is a long-term investment. These are things that I think a lot of uh, of businesses struggle with, this idea of you're taking a big risk and you know it's going to take a long mm-hmm. time for that risk to pay off. Because there's so much emphasis on short-term gains and short-term turnaround. But for Delta, it worked. Yeah. And I guess you could figure they're thinking they're in Chapter 11 already. So compared to the $10 billion they lost. Yeah, it's only a third of that. It's only a third of that. (laughs) Um, They're already failing. This is the Hail Mary for them. Well, one of the things they decide to do is put a new focus on the customer experience. This was a major part of the rebranding for Delta to say, we are looking at this from your point of view. Yeah, they wanted to keep the immediate impact of this bankruptcy minimal for their customers. Yeah, they did have to increase fare prices in a few routes, Mm -hmm. and they did also cut back on some of those routes and uh, flight capacity, which, again, can make it pretty challenging to get to where you're going sometimes. They also introduced a new logo and and some branding, which doesn't seem like a big thing and doesn't really seem like it would benefit the customer beyond trying to be more eye-catching. But it actually uh, took the amount of colors they needed in their logo and cut it, and it made it a lot less expensive to logo everything. Of course, they had to put their new logo on everything first. Right. But the new logo was uh, was more efficient. Yes. <laughs> uh, they also began to include new amenities, both if you were in flight or waiting at the mm-hmm. gate. So that would include things like in-flight Wi-Fi. Uh, they had various uh, in-flight entertainment systems Mm -hmm. that were installed in a lot of their aircraft more and more. In fact, it's pretty rare now when I get on a Delta flight that does not have an in-flight entertainment uh, uh, display on the back of the seat in front of me. Yes, both of my flights to and from my vacation this past weekend did not. Mm. So sometimes it does happen. They did They did have other amenities. It was still a lovely flight. Uh, they also streamlined their check-in for their business class customers. So the people who wanted to pay a little bit more got a better experience. Yeah. And they tried to train their employees to, to kind of have a, a more empathetic outlook on those who are traveling. I can say, uh, anyone who's traveled a lot can say this, there are certain people who experience a heightened sense of anxiety when they are traveling mm-hmm. and when they are no longer the person who is in control of their traveling. And as a result, sometimes their interactions can become a little testy. And I am always impressed by airline employees who are managing to keep their cool after what I can only mm-hmm. imagine is the 75th person to directly hold them responsible for whatever ills they perceive against them. Yes. They train their employees using what they called the quote-unquote rules of the road. Oddly enough, since they fly. Yeah. And, you know, it focused a lot on empathy. They used sayings from C.E. Woolman, who was the— The former owner. The former owner. Uh, Things like, let's put ourselves on the other side of the counter, and the only monotonous thing about the aviation industry is the constant change. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing constant is change. Yes. Uh, 
And they looked on creating a, a better employee morale as well. Gosh, they had to after cutting and cutting and cutting. So they said, well, tell you what, what we're going to do is create a, a, a profit sharing program. So when Delta makes money, you make more money. Mm-hmm. They also added 60 international routes to take up the slack caused by U.S. competition. So they kind of looked at what their problem was and then directly fixed that problem. When, again, because there was no longer this regulation, they didn't mm-hmm. have to sit there and clear everything. You know, Obviously, you have other issues you have to negotiate. You have to negotiate with uh, airports to make sure yes. that you have the gate capacity and everything. But they were able to make these plans and, and end up building out their international flights to create more revenue from uh, that travel and less dependence on, or, you know, not so much a sole dependence on domestic travel. Yeah, Delta now serves 59 countries out of the Atlanta airport hub. Now, uh, they were able to avoid a hostile takeover attempt from U.S. Airways in early 2007. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, they were able to do this through multiple means, including a a sort of a PR campaign. Uh, hostile takeovers tend to be where a company goes to shareholders and tells the shareholders of that company, you're better off if you go with us. So if you mm-hmm. vote, if you vote so that we get places on the board of directors, we can take over the company. So what Delta does is they create a PR campaign called Keep Delta My Delta. And through this, they're able to argue that it would be better for Delta to stand on its own rather than become acquired by another company. Yeah, they played on the affection of their employees and customers, relating them to stakeholders in the company, Mm -hmm. which some of them were. Yeah, and uh, saying, you guys are valuable and Mm -hmm. we want our company to remain our company. Yes. Uh, And they were able to do that. And in April 2007, two years after entering bankruptcy, they emerged. So the company was able to actually turn things around and come out of bankruptcy. And came out better than they went in. Which is what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. So when they went into bankruptcy, they had a revenue per available mile seat that was about 86% of the industry average. And when they came out, it was at 96%. So they continue to grow and expand today. I mean, uh, there's a point now where domestic travel, which used to be 80% of their revenue, is now down to 69%. Mm-hmm. So they have diversified in that sense. They acquired or merged essentially with Northwest. That is an interesting story from the employee perspective, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, but it also means that my wife has traveled a lot more to Minnesota and occasionally talks in a very funny way when she comes home. <laughs> Asking for tacos. Yeah, she, she say, oh, Minnesota was, it was really good, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so they, they've done quite well uh, mm-hmm. since then. They were ranked as one of the world's five most profitable airlines uh, every year since 2012. Yes, and in 2016, they paid out $1.1 billion in the company profit sharing plan. So clearly, companies making money, employees mm-hmm. are starting to get those bonuses. Yeah, they Pro- give a whole bunch of other employee bonuses as well. Yeah, it probably helped take away some of that sting for the employees who have been around long enough to have seen those payroll yes. cutbacks. And, and I mean, here's the other thing. Delta employees tend to be like lifers, y'all. Yeah, well— I mean, they stay, they stay with that company for decades. Well, because Delta really is working to make the work experience better. Since 2010, they've increased employee compensation by 80%. Mm-hmm. And they are ranked as one of Fortune's 100 best companies to work for. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, so this is 
one of those things we keep on seeing here. They're also a, the biggest employer in mm-hmm. our city. Uh, you know, it's it's not Coca-Cola. It's Delta. No. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's there's been some other stuff happening recently that that slowed things down. The winter of 2017 was pretty rough, but they still were able to have uh, growth in revenue year yeah. over year. Yeah, and there's some oil refinery and fuel price hedging happening that's Getting a little bit of mixed reviews with... Yeah, but overall, I would say they've done a pretty good job. It was an amazing job to pull out of bankruptcy like that mm-hmm. and to win back the uh, loyalty of employees who probably were feeling kind of abandoned for a few years there. Yes, and right before we recorded this episode, I actually read an article that while other airlines are pulling uh, in-seat entertainment consoles out of their planes mm-hmm. to... Uh, reduce weight and save costs. Delta's like, nope, we're keeping that in for our customers. Yeah. So. As long as we don't see more uh, squishing seats closer together so that you have even less leg room. I'll have to like lay on my side if they do that. Yeah, they they might well just fold me up and put me in the overhead (laughs) compartment. I mean, obviously I'll have to get on the plane first because those things fill up so fast. Yes. But yeah, that's that's Delta's return from the brink. Delta, uh, which... It's such a big company here in Atlanta. It's it could be hard to imagine such a such a. It's like almost like a too big to fail kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to imagine a company that that size struggling. But it was not a guarantee that it was going to pull through that bankruptcy. But they really doubled down on some core values that I think, in the long term, paid off. And hopefully, we'll see that continue. Because, uh, you know, I love the way they fly, and it shows. <laughs> do, do, do. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Brink. We can't wait to talk to you about our next company. I mean, we, we just spent time in the Delta. Mm-hmm. What if uh, what if next we go and explore the Amazon? Ooh. <laughs> well, until then, I am Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Caston. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about, as well as keep track of all of our episodes, make sure you visit our website at thebrinkpodcast.show. Or you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.